Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start out this morning with a little quiz. Now, don't worry, you didn't have to prepare. It's not very long, only three questions. But it does take a little bit of uh, interaction. I'll need you to raise your hand as I ask the questions. The, the first question, I want you to raise your hand if you have ever asked someone else to pray for you. You've been struggling with something and you ask somebody else, hey, would you pray for me? Okay, good. Okay, question number two. Has somebody else ever asked you to pray for them? Same thing. Yeah? Most of you have had that experience. Most of you have had both of those experiences of asking somebody else to pray for you and ask, having someone else ask you to pray for them. Now, the third question I don't want you to raise your hand for. I just want you to think about this. How many of you have ever prayed for that other person every time that somebody asks? 100% of the time. Okay. Sometimes that doesn't happen, right? Even though we have our best intentions, even though we really want to pray for somebody, sometimes we get distracted, right? I know I do sometimes, and that might shock you because I'm a pastor, and you might think, well, hey, you're a professional prayer. You should have a 100% conversion rate between prayers requested and prayers offered. But you know how life goes sometimes, right? Somebody shares something with you, or you see something on Facebook, or you hear secondhand, and you say, yes, I'll, I'll pray for you. But just as quickly as that prayer request comes into your mind, you go on to the next task, or your next appointment, or the next activity, or whatever you're doing next quickly replaces that prayer request in your mind. And it's not malicious. You intended to pray for them. You just get distracted. I know if this happens to me, that prayer request usually comes back a couple of days later. It'll just hit me out of nowhere, and I'll think, oh, i got to do this right now. And as soon as I prayed, then I make a second prayer. Hey, help me not do that again. And it still happens sometimes, though. But if you ever found this happening to you, you're, you're in good company. Not just with the other people who have experienced that, but also with Jesus' disciples. I don't know if you remember the night that Jesus was arrested and he takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he invites Peter and James and John along with them a little bit further as he goes to pray. And he asks them one thing. He says, stay awake, watch, and pray with me as I go over there to pray. You know how this works out, right? Jesus comes back from praying only to find those disciples asleep. They've gotten distracted from being tired. Jesus wakes them up. He says, keep watch. Don't let temptation overtake you. And he goes away again for a second time and then for a third time. And both of the times then that he comes back, he finds them asleep again. Can you believe that? Here the disciples are with Jesus and he's made this simple request and they still fail. They fail kind of like you and I fail too, Right? We fail because we're so easily distracted. Our sinful nature is prone to grab a hold of anything that isn't God and his word. For Christians especially, that's not always grabbing a hold of things that are inherently evil. 
We can even grab a hold of God's good gifts and get distracted with them too. We might grab a hold of work and turn it into an obsession. Or we might grab a hold of uh, our, our hobbies and our rest and just fill our entire lives with them. Or we grab a hold of a dollar and another dollar thinking that if we just get enough, then we'll be content. Sin against God and one another over and over again. Not loving God with our heart and soul and mind and definitely not always loving our neighbors as ourselves. We break God's commandments, we justify our actions, and then we live our lives like none of it really matters at all. But that's really the way our culture teaches us to live, right? Live for yourself. Do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. It all flows out of our sinful nature, which is inherently self-centered. What's in it for me? What's good for me? This is where it all started in the Garden of Eden, right? God creates this beautiful, perfect garden. He puts Adam and Eve in there, formed in his own image. He tells them to take care of it, to fill it, and to trust him to provide everything that they need. And then Satan comes along. He says, did God really say that? Did God really say that you couldn't eat from the fruit of that tree? Did God really say that you couldn't just do whatever you wanted to do? Did he really say that he had standards for the way that his people ought to live? You know, Satan was trying to sow doubt in their minds trying to get them to second guess the words that God had spoken to them. But the answers to those questions were yes. Yes, God said you couldn't eat from this tree in the garden. Yes, God said you couldn't just do whatever you wanted to do and that he did actually have expectations for the way that his people would live. Yet it's really easy to buy into Satan's lie over and over and over again to not live according to God's standards. Now doing that, we know, deserves nothing but death. That's God's standard. Be perfect and live or sin and die. But if that's where the story ended, where if that's where this sermon ended, it'd be pretty hopeless, right? We know our lives and we know that we don't meet that standard. But that's where this circles back around to the theme of praying that we talked about at the beginning that I had you raise your hand for, which is the basis for our gospel reading here this morning. You see, our gospel reading is quite remarkable and really full of hope if we, we dive into it and think about it. It's in this text that we see what not failing looks like. Our text for this morning is part of what is often known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And that might not mean a whole lot to say high priestly prayer, although a high priestly prayer sounds kind of cool. But Jesus' high priestly prayer is pretty amazing when we realize who he's praying about. Because in this portion of the prayer that we heard read this morning, Jesus is praying for you. Think about that. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the son of God, the perfect 
only perfect person to walk on this earth is praying for you. Now let's step back and get a little bit of context to where this text falls into John's gospel. You see, John uh, recounts quite a few things that Jesus has to say on the night that he's arrested. He tells his disciples that he's the way and the truth and the life. He promises them that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He talks about being the vine and them being the branches. He promises them that they're going to be persecuted just as he was persecuted because no servant is greater than their master. And then chapter 16 ends with one of my favorite verses in Scripture, verse 33, where he says, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Then Jesus prays. First for his disciples. John 17, 1 through 19 is a prayer for the disciples that are immediately around Jesus. He prays that God the Father would protect them, that he would keep them in the truth that's been revealed to them through Jesus' life and through his teachings. Then verse 20, the beginning of our text for today, Jesus pivots from praying for the disciples that are immediately around him to praying for you and for me. He goes on to say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. That's you, and that's, that's me. Jesus, the Son of God, takes time out of his day, pretty important day, actually. It's the night that he's arrested, to pray for you. And you didn't even have to ask him to do that. You didn't have to say, hey, Jesus, life is pretty rough right now. I'm grieving. I'm struggling. Hey, could you pray for me? Now, Jesus does it on his own accord. He takes the initiative and he prays for you. He prays for you because he loves you. Love is what drives all that God does. God is love, and that's what drove him to create the world. It's what drove him to form man out of his own image. It was that remarkable love that reached out when Adam and Eve thought that they could just go and do their own, own thing with an offer of forgiveness and restoration instead of simply destruction and punishment. That love became incarnate when God stepped down into the flesh, being born of Mary. That love was on display throughout Jesus' teaching and preaching, through his healing and his ministry forgiving of sins. Now the ultimate demonstration of that love will be on display in just a few hours after this prayer as Jesus is nailed to the cross as the sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Jesus knows that's why he's here. A few moments after he makes this prayer, when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will pray for a second time. He'll pray that if there's any other way that this mission can be accomplished without him suffering, that he'd love for that to be the option. But that's not the way. And Jesus moves forward faithfully. But first, he prays for you. 
He prays that all those who come to faith in him through the words of the apostles would be united together as one, just as Jesus and the Father are united together. Unity with God is where everything started, and unity with God is the key to restoration and salvation. But you know, we can't do that on our own. The explanation of the third article of the Apostles' Creed says, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. We can't unite ourselves with God. But God can unite himself with us. Paul tells us really clearly in Romans 6 how this uniting happens. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have been united with Christ through your baptism. Your sin has been washed away and you've been given new life that no one can take away from you. Jesus prays for this, that you would be united with him so that you would be saved Then if you notice, he doesn't only pray for your unity with him, but also for your unity with one another. That that love that flows so freely through him and through the cross would flow equally freely through you to each other. This is our lives as Christians, being united with the God of the universe being united both with his death that kills our sin, but also with his resurrection that raises us to new life so that we can be assured that none of the tragedies and wickedness that we experience on a weekly basis can take that away from us. It gives us an unshakable confidence that neither death nor life nor anything in this world can take away that love that God has shown to us nor can it take away all of the things that God has promised. That's what allows us to be united with one another, loving and caring for each other until we get to be with Jesus for eternity. Jesus prays about that too. He says that he desires that we may be with him where he is, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. This past Thursday, we celebrated Ascension Day, the day that we gather together to remember Jesus returning to the right hand of his Father, sitting in all of that glory, ruling over all things until the day that he returns. Beyond that day that he returns, that we get to be with him in that glory forever, free from pain and suffering, from sickness and death, 
and conflict and fighting and violence, a place where we will find true peace and rest. Till that day, you can rest assured that this is yours freely through Jesus. He started it with his promise. He accomplished it with his death and his resurrection. And he's given it to you through your baptism. It is yours right now. The good news is Jesus will come back soon. Who knows? Maybe it'll even be today. And when he returns, we will experience the fullness of his glory. Until then, then, rest in his word. Receive his body and blood for the strengthening of your faith. Be confident that nothing distracts Jesus from loving you. He will be with you every day until he returns. Amen.